The Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Land Trust. Have you heard how landowners are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use? Millions of outdoor recreators seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Landowners are partnering with the Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit landtrust.com/boa as in business of agriculture to learn more. That's landtrust.com/boa. Greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason. You knew that because it said so in the introduction. Got a great episode for you today because we're talking about beef. You know, I love beef. The average American right now is eating about 57 pounds of beef per American per year. That's down considerably from where it was when I was born in the end of the 1960s. It was pushing 100 pounds, but it's still an incredibly important part of the protein complex. Uh, here in the United States of America, we're pretty good at producing beef. We don't have the highest number of cattle the world over, We also, but we do have the highest number of pounds produced because we tend to make better beef animals than some of the other countries that we compete with. I'm sitting here in Nebraska, Bertrand, Nebraska, a town just about the size of the room you're sitting in right now, dear listener. But you know what? There's a lot of cattle out here. I'm talking to Kim Ford and Randy Adolph. They are beef people. He is a customer of hers. He is a commercial beef producer. She is more on the genetic side, but also does produce beef. We're going to teach you all about the beef business from their perspective. We're going to hear about what struggles they have, where there's been opportunities, where they're making money, where they've not made money, some of the regulatory marketplace, consumer issues they deal with, and how they carve out their slice here in the business of agriculture. Randy, welcome to the program. Thank you. All right, Kim, thanks for being here. Just so you know, dear listener, Kim is the proprietor, uh, her and her husband, Scott, of the Cross Diamond Cattle Company in Bertrand, Nebraska. She is from western Nebraska. He is from nearby. They met at the University of Nebraska. They hired me to do a presentation for them that coincides with their genetics sale. She's going to tell you all about that but anyway uh bertrand i'm sorry with uh with randy and with kim uh give me the quick lowdown here i just gave a little bit of background about her background on you uh i've been in the cattle business for about 40 years started as a 4-h project um kind of a odd coincidence i'm in northern illinois and there's not a lot of cattle in northern illinois right. we are two hours basically west of chicago um, we are probably the, one of the largest cow operators in the state of Illinois, and we are all basically purebred and commercial Red Angus cattle. Okay. Pass the microphone over to my girl, Kim. Kim, uh, okay, you hired me to come here and speak to your customers. I really appreciate that. I learned a little bit about your company because I went on the website as soon as you uh, contacted me. Give me a little background here. You were raised on a ranch and a beef production operation in western Nebraska. Take me from there. I was raised in the sand hills of Nebraska, which is cattle country for sure um not much other than grass will grow really well there so that is cattle country we had the opportunity to uh my husband scott's here from this area in bertrand and in 06 we had the opportunity to move down here and um start out on our own we were on my family's operation for 10 years after we graduated from school and and jumped out on our own in 06 and 
it's been an interesting ride since then. So we're recording this, dear listener, in December of 2021. So for 15 years, her and her husband have set up shop over here. Tell us what that operation looks like, because a lot of people, uh, you know, they, they are like, okay, this sounds cool, but what happens out here? Tell us what happens here in your operation. What's it look like? So we have herds of both registered cows uh, and commercial cows. So the registered cow's job is to raise bulls to sell to customers like Randall to put into his herd to raise beef. And then we also have a herd of commercial cows uh, where those are for raising beef completely. And at the end of the day, all of the cow's job is raising beef. We're, I mean, they're not special just because they're raising a bull. Every cow, it's all every, a every cow, every bull, every bull that gets castrated made into a steer, every heifer that doesn't quite come uh, into an estrus, they still end up as something on a dinner plate. So everything that's a bovine ends up getting on a dinner plate, right? There you go. So the two things you described there, so somebody's saying, hey, I don't really know a lot about this. You've got two different, really, herds. You've got the one that is to raise genetics and the one that is purely just, these are nothing fancy, these are just your basic production cows, right? Right. And the thing that we concentrate on is actually the cow herds don't look any different. They're not managed any different. And that's what we think is of value to our customers is that we treat our registered cows the same as we treat our commercial cows. So the bulls that we're raising are expected to raise offspring, uh, females and, and steers that are going to perform. And they aren't getting any special groceries, nothing along the way. They're, they're real cattle that we hope will go and perform for our customers, whether they're in Nebraska or Illinois or Missouri, wherever. Mr. Adolph, you uh, you said something, or I said something. There's a lot of folks that, like, the, even the vernacular is a little bit lost on them. I mean, even people within ag are like, I don't know, I'm over here in the cranberry business. What'd you say? Cow-calf. What's that mean? So just kind of uh, give a big picture of what the beef production uh, industry looks like in the United States of America from your perspective. Ooh, that's going to be a tough one for me. Uh all right, well, there's cow-calf operators like you there's, or people like your yes. neighbors out here. That means they have cows that have calves. Then what happens? Basically, most of cattle will go into a feed yard, and they will be harvested. Well, they'll, they'll basically feed them until it's time to harvest them. You're, you're doing that thing where you've been around it for 40 years. I want you to take it back to the person that's in the cranberry business. The cow has a calf. Take me from there. The calf stays on the mama cow the for cow, about six the, months. The cow, Take me from there. Yes, the cow stays on the, the calf stays on the cow for about six months. Yep. And then we pull that calf off, and we will background that calf, and and hold him for. Everybody does it a little bit different. We hold ours for about a month. And backgrounding to the the layperson would mean would basically mean you're feeding those calves. You've got them weaned from the cow. You've got every all their vaccinations into them, so everything is done correctly. So when they go to the feed yards, they are ready to go for the feed yard so they don't have any issues with with the uh, feeding of them and they don't get sick and, there you and go. that type. So now we've explained backgrounding and, and it's important because there's a lot of people that are like, I didn't know I didn't know all this. So a calf gets born and then it goes on, a, it's on a mama cow for about six months. It's out there eating grass, typically in a place like western Nebraska, right? And then, then the person says, we're going to wean them, we're going to remove them from the cow and we're going to then background them, which means we're going to get them scaled up from being from a calf on, a, on the side of the mom cow to now being ready to start going more full tilt into let's put some beef on this carcass. Yes, and, 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 and the difference is out here in Nebraska, they will do things different than what we do things in in Illinois. Right. Well, so, you don't have vast acres of, no. of uh, dry grassland that have very little value. You have intense amounts of agriculture because the farm ground is worth a lot of money, and therefore it should grow corn and soybeans. Am I right? Yes. And our grassland is different than their grassland. Our grassland will produce a lot more grass. Yes. So the same amount of acres, if they run 500 cows on and it takes, what, uh, 2,000 acres to do it? Yes. I can do the same amount of cows 
on less acres. on nine hundred acres. Yeah, because you have you because have, I have more more grass and we have more rainfall than what they've get out here. Absolutely. And we have different grasses. So this cow calf operation, then a person like you, you uh, your business is to to make calves. Do you take them all the way up until they get butchered and turned into cheeseburgers, or do you take them to a certain point and sell them on to a feed yard? We basically take them to around five hundred and fifty pounds, and then they go to a feed yard. We have a certain feed yard that will come and buy our cattle every year. So when we're when we're done, and they're we, buying just the calves. They're buying, They're not buying the cows. Yep, they're like, just yeah. buying the calves. No cows, just yep. the calves. And mm-hmm. so we wean those calves off, run them through their preconditioned stuff, background them, and then we sell those calves to a feed yard. Take them from thir- from five hundred fifty pounds up to say thirteen fifty, and then that's when they get made into cheeseburgers yep. and steaks. Exactly. Okay. So back to Kim. Kim, you understand this. You've been around it your whole life. On the ranch you were raised uh, in in western Nebraska, was that? commercial meaning just to go ahead and make cheeseburgers or were you also in the genetics where you said we're going to build a better bull and we're going to build a better heifer it was both my parents started in the red angus business in 1972 so yeah they had registered cattle and uh and commercial cattle as well that I was raised with out there. So the consumer that's driving down the in the suburbs of America and says, I th- there's a chain of restaurants called Sterling's Black Angus. I've heard about Black Angus. you got to have a Black Angus steak. You just said Red Angus. What gives? Interesting that you bring that up. Just recently, uh, the USDA officially recognized Red Angus as Angus. It's, as a, it's as, all the as, same as, thing. As, yes. yeah, so the point is, dear listener, there's black Angus that most everybody thinks of. They're also red-hided. Right, Angus. right. They're still... Same genetic same genetic pool that it all came from. Yeah, same breed, different yeah. color. And same. Be- it all looks the same when you take the hide off, right? Sure. Yeah. So you produce red Angus here, and you produce them. Uh, you're, you're Obviously, you make a bit more money, a bit more margin with a bit more work to refine the genetics. Let's talk about what that looks like. You say, all right, we want to be in the business of selling bulls to a guy like... Uh, Randy, he's got how many cows to cover again? 550. He's got 550 cows. How many bulls does he need to service 550 cows? So it takes about, you usually figure about uh, 20 to 25 cows per bull. Okay, so he, he needs he needs like, uh, you know, 20 or so bulls, right? Right. Okay, right. he needs 20 or so bulls. And so he is going to come to your sale and you say, man, we've got great bulls. We produce bulls that, what is your claim? What do you produce bulls to achieve? We want to achieve a, a sound, fertile uh, animal because fertility, if, if a cow doesn't breed back for Randall every year, if he's having to replace his herd mm-hmm. on a regular basis, there's a lot of money in developing and getting a heifer ready to, to breed. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing we look at is fertility. We want a cow to have a calf every year. Uh, and people and are saying, wait deal. a minute, what's that have to do with the bull? It has a lot right. to do with the bull because... Lot, lot. It passes on. It's genetics. Those things are those things are following through, and it's, yeah, very genetic. So the first and most important thing you'd say here at, uh, at Cross Diamond is producing bulls that are really about good genetics, good fertility. Right. We, we like to think... Uh, it, it takes discipline to, you know, I mean, your favorite cow might come up open. It takes discipline to say, well... See you, sweetheart. And to the cranberry listener, what's open mean? Not not going to have a baby. It means it doesn't get bred. Yeah, not okay. bred. Okay. It, things that we know that we always make sure that the average person, because I have a lot of listeners that are maybe, uh, you know, like I had tuned in because I didn't know it. Okay. Going back to my man Randy here, um, how many bulls do you buy each year? Because you obviously, you know, you can't buy all 25 of the bulls you require every year. You'll go broke. You buy a couple every year? I buy two or three. Some years I buy five. But when to go back to the genetic side, what she said, when we when I buy a bull, I'm looking down the road six eight years. 
because what I buy now is not going to really show up in my genetics until six, eight years down the road. Correct. So we buy top end genetics. Yep. To get us down the road. I mean, how long does that bull perform for you? Is it is it five or six years that stays there? Oh, as a, we'll keep those bulls around six years or so. Six years. So you use a bull and you're buying it. It can start actually doing its job, meaning it can be a a papa uh, when it's two. Yes, it can be a papa earlier than that. You can you can buy yearling bulls, but at this particular sale, they're selling eighteen month old bulls, and that's what you want. You and want to start, you're going to put that bull. So if you go home with a couple of bulls in your trailer and it's 18, 19 months old, when will you turn it uh, loose with some uh, some uh, heifers and cows that are in heat? I start breeding April first. Okay, so you're looking then. You want to have calves? I'll have calves January one, okay. basically January tenth. If you start April first, yeah. Did anybody ever tell you that you live in northern Illinois and having calves born in northern Illinois in January is kind of an asinine thing to do? Well, they say I'm nuts, but I, I guess I'm finding out. All right, so answer me this. You come here because obviously you're, you're a fan. Uh, they're, they're, uh, their genetics suit what you're trying to do. Where have you made mistakes genetically in the past? Well, okay, I, buy, about- I buy bulls all over the country, have over the years past, and I always come back to this sale because the genetics are good. Yep. The cattle are good. The people are fantastic. Yep. And when you buy a bull from here, you're like family. But genetic-wise, these bulls perform better than any bull I've ever bought out of anywhere else in the country. And perform better. Define what perform is. We know we talked about fertility, meaning that, that they pass on that trait. What else are they passing on that you want in your operation? What matters to you? Disposition's huge. Uh, I made the point. I went out and looked at a few of their bulls when I pulled in here, and they are docile. And if you've been out there trying to load steers, like in my little hobby beef operation, and this one crazy son of a bitch has his ears up and he's trying to take you, you know, I got a real job. If I get hurt, I can't go on the road and make a living. I don't want those nutty things. I don't care how good they look. They're nuts. I don't want them. I like docile. Do you like docile? I like docile. I'm getting older, and the more docile, the better I like them. Okay, so temperament's important to you. Also, the more docile the animal is, the better they tend to be at gaining. Am I right? Yes. A crazy, wound-up, high-strung. Just think of this, dear listener. A crazy, wound-up, high-strung animal is like that crazy chick you knew in high school. She was always thin. She's also nuts because she just went 100 miles. Miles an hour, am I right? Well, it's just kind of like a guy sitting on the couch as a couch potato, and you got somebody that runs a marathon every week who's going to be a little bit heavier. Yeah, the guy so, on the couch potato. So you look for docile. What else you're looking for? Fertility. Tell me about carcasses. You are you are in the business when you sell those calves to a feed yard. Those feed yard people want those calves, those steers to go in there and perform and put meat on bone because that's what they make. Um, you obviously care about carcass quality and about yes. their ability to flesh. Carcass quality. I like to go with. The bulls that have larger ribeye area, I like IMF, which is internal mar- and internal marbling, and then they have to be, I can't say that word, they have to be good. Okay, they have to be good. They have to be complete. Okay. That was a difficult word for you to say. Go over here well, to Kim. That's not the word I wanted to say. All right, you can say whatever you want. Okay. I can say whatever I want on here? Yeah, you okay. sure can. All right, Kim, what have you done wrong? Because I think it's always important. And what have you done right with this operation? You've been here for 15 years. You kind of started from scratch. That's cool. It's an accomplishment. You've got hundreds of people pouring in the doors right now. They're coming to your genetic sale. You're doing something right. What have you done wrong? Because I think it's important always when some of us have the authenticity to say, you know, oh, these people say, looking back, I wouldn't change a thing. I'm like, are you stupid? I changed lots of things. What have you done wrong? What have we done wrong? One thing is is if we just breed for what we want to do and don't listen to our customers, yep. if we don't want listen to what Randall needs, yep. 
that's going to go wrong. Uh, so we might we might really love the genetics that we're reading right now, but if we aren't like Randall looking six to eight years down the road, right? Uh, that's a mistake, and I think we have done that, made that mistake in the past. You made that mistake at Cross Diamond. What about the beef industry? Because I would say that the beef industry has made a few mistakes about what they thought the customer should just be happy receiving versus what the customer wanted. You got any perception on that? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, It's always easy uh, as producers to breed biggers better, right? Well, our consumers don't want to be looking down at a a 17-inch ribeye on their plate. That doesn't make a good steak. You can't cut it thick enough to make it appealing. So I've I've made that point as well, Kim, that uh, just because the feed yard said, well, you know what? It's going to be most efficient for us to take these cattle up to 1,560 pounds. I'm like, you're putting a steak on that. The man and woman go out to dinner. Hey, honey, let's have a steak. And then there's this plate. It's like, I can't eat this. This thing's enormous. We made carcasses too big is what you're saying. Because it was convenient for us, but the consumer never said, I want a huge carcass, right? Right. They didn't say, I want a a 16-inch ribeye. No. Was that the only mistake we've made in the beef production business? Oh, heavens no. Give me a couple others. Oh, Give me a while. All right, kick it back over to Randy while you're thinking about mistakes. <laughs> what, 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 what things? Do you have mistakes you want to tell me about the beef uh, business? No, I, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. I'm good with that. Yeah. You're okay with not yeah. making any mistakes? Uh, I make mistakes. Yeah, yes. of course you have. Are you making money? Are we making money? We're making money. Yeah. Are we, in the year are we, 2020, we're at, right now it's December 2021. We're going to be dropping this in the beginning of 2022. Can you look back at 2021 and say, yes, Randall Adolph's uh, beef operation made money? I mean, and most farmers will never admit they make any money. I think it's ridiculous. If you if you work for some company and say, hey, you're in a garage door business. Did you make money? No, we didn't. We broke. I'm like, well, well, I don't know if that's a very good way to look at things. Did you make money in 2021? In 2021, yeah, we made some money. Okay. But there's a lot of years where we don't make a lot of money. Right. I mean, we're it's it's a flexible market. You said you get 550 cows, Randall. I think I read once, maybe a USDA publication in the last year, the average cow calf beef cow operation has like 42 because there's still some old timer that just thinks it's cool to have a couple hey, dozen cows out. Your there. average herd is 40, I think 40 or 42 head. Yes. Yeah. So my numbers and your numbers, flesh, we, we're, we're almost we're, like we're, we're in agreement. We, yeah, we're in agreement with I that. I didn't know yes, if we were going to get along, and here yeah, we are. We are. So, you're quite a bit bigger than that. Is bigger always going to be the way things go, the way it is with everything else? Uh, m- more integration? What's going to happen on the beef thing? Bigger's not always better. Uh huh. If you're bigger, the way I look at it, you need better genetics. Uh huh. So that's why we buy the best genetics we can get a hold of. Uh huh. And then that will help us produce more beef. I mean, the little guys are making money as well. Mm-hmm. And, and the little guys can't afford to buy the higher genetic bulls. Which there's nothing wrong with that, but we have the option. We can spread our cost over more more cows and cover sure. more cows. So with those you think bulls. the struggle with being a smaller scale beef producer, and I'm not talking about feed yards, although we'll get to that, is that they're just going to be a little bit more handcuffed on the genetics they can bring into their operation. Well, yeah, I mean, if a guy wants to buy a bull, you're not going to go spend thirty thousand on a bull for to breed ten cows or fifteen sure. cows. We can spend thirty thousand on a bull that'll cover. 500 cows over the years Mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's easier for us to go out and spend a little more on genetics because i can cover it that way but the ai you can use in ai which is artificial insemination yes sir to cover and get some of those good bulls for not that much cost so kim uh we're talking about the genetic thing right here maybe someone would make the question say why don't you just sell genetics then wouldn't you rather sell expensive bulls than just uh feeder calves why do you even fool with anything other than genetics if you have these uh, opportunities to sell your heifers and your bulls for more money for the genetics? Supply and demand. We don't want to overflood the market. And uh, it is 
you know, I mean, we got to go with what we have room to sell and, and that fluctuates, but the cattle industry doesn't fluctuate real fast. We've got a slower turnaround than any pork and chicken can turn around their supply really quickly. Whereas beef, when you've got a nine month this gestation and we're selling 18 month old bulls, mm-hmm. um, 27 months right there by my, there math. you go. That takes a while to, that takes a while from start to finish on, on a registered operation. You're in your mid forties. You've been around this your whole life. Give me a couple of big differences between what, what things are happening right now and the year heading into 2022. What's different now heading into 2022 than say when you were the, uh, 4-H fair queen, I'm, I'm assuming she was obviously she's a beautiful woman <laughs> and she's out there. Anyway, when you were say 18 contemplating, going to university and studying agriculture what's different there's a lot more numbers to look at uh and and i think i think people need to sort out what are meaningful numbers and not all numbers are meaningful on every operation are you talking about data about the beef production are you talking about numbers in terms of the finances give me give me a little more background on numbers numbers i'm talking uh when we talk numbers in the in the registered business we're talking um predictions genetic prediction numbers Mm mm-hmm um, called EPDs, expected progeny differences. So we can predict what they might be like, but that's based on the accuracy of the information that's that's given to the prediction in the first place. Yeah. So there's a lot of that to look at. And, and, and to take your cranberry uh, analogy, I assume there's not a whole lot of different ways to raise cranberries. I, I don't know. I don't know where all you can raise cranberries Wisconsin, or how you can Massachusetts, plant them. Massachusetts primarily, and there have been, I have done the cranberry growers of uh, Cape Cod before. I happen to just always use that as my go-to when I say, let's say that I'm in the cranberry business, I wouldn't know about beef. That's right. why I always use it. My listeners are like, you're always bringing up the cranberries. What's the deal with this? Anyway, so the so, cranberries the Cranberries are probably going to have, you're right, there's going to be a, they, they're in a bog. And they probably don't vary their production methods. And you're saying there's a whole bunch of different ways we go about making beef. Right. Is that what I'm hearing? Right. Yeah. Cattle are very adaptable. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of w- different ways to go about it. And, and you know, we're, we're going to one end product, but there's a lot of different product lines, product places you can go. Yeah. So, yeah. So the numbers, you talked about the numbers. You just said that we've gotten to where we have a lot more of them. We have a lot more data to compile. Right. And sometimes you wonder... Did we concentrate on the wrong ones? And I want to right. ask Mandy about that. So are we concentrating on the wrong ones? Is it, when we look at what we're doing differently, because you've been at this for 40 years, are we are we looking at this the right way now, or are we still going to get better? I think we're going to get better down the road. We're going to have to get better down the road. We're going to have to change some things, because I think we're going to get forced to change some things. So, yeah, as, as a beef industry, we're going to have to, I want to say, tighten the reins a little bit. And, and everybody's going to have to kind of come together. There's a lot of breeds in the beef industry, and not everybody, I want to say, follows um, in the same standards in the beef. I mean, the Red Angus standard is different than the Angus and the Charlay and on so forth. But I think we just need to – it's going to get better. Okay, We well, will end up getting better. Well, I, and, and I don't know that it's bad, but you bring up something. Obviously, I speak to pork people and to poultry people, and, I mean, I'm, I'm across the board. Uh, the one thing that you uh, that the customer doesn't even necessarily fully get, the customer goes to a fancy place like Whole Foods or Kroger. It doesn't matter, and they walk in and there's pork chops. It's just pork chops. Yep. A pork chop doesn't have a grading of choice, prime, select, or cutter canner. A pork chop. Um, is generally almost always the same size because the hogs that go to the butchering facility weigh 280 pounds and a tremendous amount of consistency of the product. Same thing for poultry. Chicken broiler goes to the processing place at 6.3 pounds. 
we got beef out here. You got Red Angus. You got Watusis. By the way, dear listener, if someone ever tells you, come over, grab Watusi steaks, stop at McDonald's on the way and say, no, I already ate. It's <laughs> shit. Don't eat any of that Watusi stuff, okay? Anyway, a tremendous amount of variation between the product. Is that what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, you're Are we going to become more institutional and, and, and become more all the same? I'm not sure you're going to be able to get it the same as what you're getting the chicken and the pork. But it's, I think it's going to come together, and we're going to get a little closer than what we are right now. Yeah, I mean, a pretty st- big variation. You still have cattle weighing 1,800 pounds going to the, coming out of the feed yards, going to the, to the packing houses. Yeah. And you got moderate frame cattle that are only going to weigh 1,200 pounds. I mean, there's a big variance there. Right. You can even go smaller. I mean, yeah. there's probably somebody that's taking uh, you know, some, some Holstein, uh, Holstein heifers that uh, somehow didn't breed, and they're getting processed in there, and they're at 900 pounds. So, yeah, yeah you've got- I think eventually it's going to come a little tighter than what it is right now. But it's gonna, it's down the roadways. Tell me this, uh, Kim. Is that where the biggest is that where the biggest adjustment you think is moving forward? You've been around this your whole life. We're going to become a more cons- a more shall I say commoditized beef product because right now there's still a tremendous amount of gradations from genetics, from very from breeds, and then also from size of animals, and then also from finish. Meaning, when people say, "What's well, the difference between choice and select?" I'm like, "Buy the choice." Anyway, well, I think there are things there are things to learn yep. from the poultry and and pork industries, they have made it a consistent product. Um, I argue that we have a high quality product that you could, I mean, you can, you can buy more, buy more quality in beef. Um, if you, if you so desire. So I think there's things to learn there. And I think there's things to be really happy with that. We have, we have a lot of upward potential too. Okay, speaking of upward potential, maybe this is downward potential. Those other two industries we just mentioned are extremely vertically integrated. It happened with poultry in the 1970s. There was a whole bunch of independent poultry barns in northern Indiana where I was raised. Uh, happened in pork starting in the end of the 90s when all of a sudden hogs went to seven cents a pound. You couldn't even haul them to market for what you were getting. We vertically integrated. Right now, most every pound of pork and chicken that is produced in the United States of America has done so on a contractual arrangement through vertical integrators uh, that removes a tremendous amount of risk for the producer. We don't have that in beef right now. Is it coming? I'm thinking. Randall's shaking his head. Randall, go. I don't think so. I don't think we can get to that point. And it's because of why. And, and, And I'm neither here nor there. I actually have to ask the question because I always want to know what the industry thinks. I think it's because there's too much variation in the industry between the different breeds. I'm not sure we'll ever get to that point where we're where we're at where the hog and the, and the pork are at because I don't I just the don't think the, poultry, the hog and the poultry. I just don't think we can get there. Yeah. So you think it's more a matter of of uh, the the product varies too much. Our pro- yeah our product varies too much, but it's going to be real hard to do. Well, I'm going to throw another one at you because I just I, these are things I wonder, and I think that my listeners that keep up with it wonder. You know, there was a 50 cow dairy on every county road where I was raised, uh, and that was only 40 years ago. And here there are, there's almost no 40 cow dairies, and those that are have to be tremendously specialized, bottling their own milk and calling it, you know, a branded product, unhomogenized, whatever that thing should be. With beef, to be a smaller producer, you already talked about some of the challenges of being a smaller producer. Is it going to have to be those people go direct to consumer and then everybody of a certain scale becomes, okay, now we're part of the vertical integration? I think you're going to find a lot of these smaller producers are selling direct to consumers. Yes. And, you, and you're seeing that in the last 
Five since to 10, yeah, 15. since since no, since the COVID basically hit. Oh, it's gotten I really mean, big. In the it's last gotten two really years. exploded in the last two years. I mean, a lot of these packing plants, small packing plants yeah. that are processing custom packs yeah. for people, are just swamped. Yeah. I mean, you're out two years a, a, to a, get something in. An entrepreneurial person that wants to do the work should open a, a smaller butchering processing facility because I know I can't get dates. Let's talk about then the integration when. The average person is not only uh, a 42-cow uh, operation, they're also about 68 years old. Is there going to be a sea change on ages? I want to go to Kim because she's got two young people. I don't know if you do or not. She's got two daughters at home. Is there going to be a sea change in this industry when we finally get to where the old crusty rancher just takes his last drive in the, uh, in the, in the pickup truck? And then what? Well, I think it is encouraging. We are seeing young people. I, I mean, we were seeing young people coming. And and that is interesting. And like Randall said, you can make you can make some money here. You got to be smart, and you got to have your pencil sharp, and you you got to be looking at a consumer. Um, but yes, I think it is an area of concern as well. We are seeing an aging population, and it is expensive to get into uh, the beef business, uh, buying ground and buying cattle. It it is expensive. So, and I think we've seen some creative ways of passing. Um, passing those things into a next generation that maybe maybe are or maybe aren't family. It tends to be this way in all of production. Frankly, it's a high capital investment, low margin business, just about every which way you look at it. Um, we talked about then the the consumption. I know that we were in the 80 to 90 pounds per American as recently as the 1970s. We're down to 57 pounds of beef consumed per American. Do those numbers ever go back up? I, I have my prediction. I want to hear it from you. Randall, do they ever go back up? Are we going to eat more beef a year or five or ten from now than we do right now in the United States? Oh, that's a tough one to answer. Okay, not for me. No, the answer is no, <laughs> no we're not going no, to. No, we're not going to. And there's a number of reasons. Economics, uh, the vigilance of the anti-beef groups, and then, of course, the political forces that um, have truly retained a tremendous amount of power from an environmentalist standpoint, even though those those things are about half-baked, it tends to play well on pulling through a certain uh, avenue of politics. So I'm going to say no. Kim, are we going to eat more or less beef five years from now? We do, the good news is we've pretty well stagnated at this 56 58 pound number you know five years from now i think that depends a lot on a diet fad i mean we see that we saw low low, low gluten or whatever low carb and then all that adkins and all that i I mean our it seems like the american diet is is highly dependent on the fads and and what somebody tells them to eat right so um i think it depends too on how much money people have in their pocket and what they're going to where they're trending for because i i do believe that americans buy quality and they will buy they will eat well if if they have the choice so the truth is even middle or lower middle class americans eat a higher quality amount of meat than much of the world because of our availability and i and i do think on that freezer beef the increase in that that may increase beef consumption in people they're getting a better deal they're able to buy in volume and fill a freezer um you know, so they're actually paying less for a higher quality product in in some cases. My wife won't buy my, won't buy normal grocery store beef uh, because once we produced our own, she says I'm going to stick with whatever. What makes you excited when you look at the future? You got kids, Randall? I have two. You got two kids. All right, and the whole the whole dream of passing it on. What gets you excited when you look at the beef industry moving forward for your children? I hopefully I can keep them involved. Is the biggest thing. Um, What's that going to take? It has to be a return, right? It has to be a return. 
Yeah, I, I mean, mean I, I like going out looking at I like looking at steers. At the end of the day, I enjoy drinking a beer and looking at those steers out there on a rolling pasture. But there's also the reality of how much work do I want to do to break even? It takes a lot of work. Yeah, and I mean, and, and to this day in industry, for the for the young people in this industry today, you've got to work to make this work. Yeah, I mean. Okay, I heard you say that you want to retain them. You didn't answer my question. When I said, "What gets you excited about the future of ag? What gets of, 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 of beef? Beef? I think it's that." A- all right, Kim, while he's thinking, what gets you excited? You've got two daughters, a fourteen-year-old and eighteen-year-old. I met them when I got here. What makes you excited about them and the future of your industry for them? It makes me excited that we have a quality product. Mm-hmm. And we have, we have a product that we're producing. We're using land that is not usable for other stuff. We're taking an animal that can convert grass to protein, high-quality protein, yep. and making it work. And I believe that's the best story from a PR standpoint that beef can come up with is we're not talking. You know, they like to go on, well, we're, we're tearing down the Amazon. Well, we're not tearing down the Amazon. We don't have any of the Amazon here. We're taking grassland that doesn't get a lot of precipitation, that has a high uh, degree of erodibility index, and we're putting uh, animals out there that can convert cellulosic fiber into protein. And that's the story that beef can tell. Right. And and, and the actual story is that that land is better grazed than not grazed. That's better for from the environment and the, the land. Environment. Yeah. That's better for everybody. So, and yes, listener, you did hear that cellulosic fiber. Every now and again, the Ag Econ guy pulls out some of his uh, you know, unique vernacular. Okay. Uh, do you find anything that gets you excited about the future of beef? I think Kim said it all. Okay. I mean, I'm going to kind of go off of her. That was exactly what I wanted to say. I just don't get it out. All right. So <laughs> so you already told me what concerns you. What concerns you is that there's a tremendous amount of capital involved. Is there another concern that you have, Kim, that concerns you about the future of the beef industry? You've been around it your whole life. Is there anything oh, that concerns I, you? I think you brought it up. The activists. I, there's attacks from everywhere. Yep. And it, those attacks concern me because some, some are real. Some may be justified. Some are not. Um, and, and so that is of concern. Yeah, we need to. We're dealing. We're producing an animal, and that's a living being that needs to be treated well and treated with respect. And we. And you do that. We all agree on that, except for a few who give a bad name. If anybody is watching this instead of listening, because, dear listener, don't forget, you can listen to the Business of Agriculture podcast, as you already do, but you can also view it. You can go on YouTube. Just type in Damian Mason, Damian Mason channel. When you go on YouTube and find it, hit subscribe, and you'll get all this stuff in your inbox. Also, if you are watching, you'll see in the background, it's got the Cross Diamond Cattle Company logo, and it talks about their bulls being bred Ford Tough, because that's their last name, Scott and Kim Ford. Also, you'll see a video playing for their bull sale. Like I said, I'm here to speak to their customers. They're going to have 300 people uh, at this function that are here to talk about beef, and they're going to buy beef, and uh, they hope you continue to buy beef as well. Uh, dear listener, I'd also like to remind you to check out the work I'm doing with Extreme Ag. You can go to Extreme, X-T-R-E-M-E, ag.farm, and see what the high-yield producers from Extreme Ag are doing. I'm helping them create their content, and do trials for corporations and products that you might be wondering about using. So go to ExtremeAg.Farm and see what we're doing over there. Uh, last thing, I always have to ask everybody this. Randall, what did we not cover that we should have in this episode about the beef business? I think we covered pretty much everything that we needed to cover. Okay. I think we did a fine job of that. You think the people that order steak medium well should have the steak taken away from them? <laughs> yes, I think so. It should be medium rare. <laughs> All right, Kim, what did we not cover in this podcast that perhaps we should have when it pertains to the industry that you're in? Again, things that maybe you see on a daily basis that, that uh, the others don't. Anything that you, uh, you think maybe people should know? Is there anything that we didn't cover? Cover. We've, we've just got a very intelligent, very really informed. I mean, people are that are raising beef are 
working hard at it yeah. to provide healthy, good protein. Protein, and uh, and it, it's a lot of work. And it is, uh, there is genuine concern to do that. Yeah, and I guess I would say that, uh, and I, I do explain this to my, my friends when I live half the year in the suburbs of Arizona, that I say, you know, they say something on TV, and they, is this true? I said, the product you are getting now is better than it's ever been. Well, I heard they're like using these, uh, these steroids. I'm like, do you realize that when I was a kid, people, I just had a conversation the other day with some friends of mine. And they said, now all those old dairy cows, when they're getting done with their useful life of milking, they just go to dog food, don't they? I said, no. No, they go to cheap burger and they go to cheap steakhouses. And I explained the whole gradation thing. These people are intelligent guys who can afford prime beef and didn't actually even understand the difference. And so I still think this whole thing about educating the consumer, no. But I make sure when people ask me questions, I say, we're producing a better product than we really have for a long time. It's safer than it's really ever been. And it's also in more of a multitude of variety and a, a, a packaging than you could ever imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like right now, you're out here not only talking about the genetics. You're saying, I hear that there's a customer that wants to pay a premium for a tomahawk hawk cut, which I never even knew what that was, and, uh, you know, all the new cuts. So that excites me, I guess, when I was saying, what should we talk about, that uh, that was more my thing than your thing. Anything else you got for me? You got your checkbook ready to spend some money? That's, wait a minute. Say it in the microphone. Have it on tape. He says he's going to spend a whole bunch of money. Yeah, I'm going to spend a little money. All right. Thanks for being here. His name, if anybody wants to ask you because they want to learn about this, how do they find Randall Adolph? Can they find you somewhere? You got a cattle, uh, you got a, you got a website for your operation? They can look on Freedom Hills Ranch or Adolph Red Angus under Freedom uh, Hills, Hills Ranch, Ranch in Northern Illinois. In Adolph Red Angus. It's one, it's combined. Adolph, the German man's name, Adolph yes. Red, Red Angus. Angus. And then go on Facebook page. There you go. And if they want to find you at uh, the Cross Diamond Cattle Company. Kim, what do they need to do? I've been to the website, but just go ahead and tell them where it is. Because you know what? Maybe they say, I want to learn more about this. I'm interested in doing this. What do you think? There you go. CrossDiamondCattle.com or you can find us on Facebook. CrossDiamondCattle.com Her name's Kim Ford. His name is Randall Adolph. We talked about beef. We gave you some background. Talked about things that maybe you hadn't thought about before. If you enjoyed this, you know what? Your friends will too. Please share this around with your ag and non-ag friends alike. Thank you very much for being here. Till next time. Thanks, guys. You bet. Till next time. Thanks, Damien. You bet. It's the business of agriculture. This episode of the business of agriculture was brought to you by Land Trust. Landowners just like you are increasing profitability by adding recreation to their portfolio of land use. Millions of recreators actively seek wide open spaces for bird watching, photography, hunting, fishing, horseback riding, and many other farm and ranch activities. Owners of farm and ranch properties are partnering with Recreation Access Network Land Trust. Land Trust is an online platform connecting recreators with landowners for outdoor experiences on their land to increase profitability. Visit LandTrust.com BOA, as in Business of Agriculture, to learn more. That's LandTrust.com BOA.